First John tonight, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and then into chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So we'll get through chapter 3, verse 10 today. This is our fourth verse-by-verse study through First John, and I'm planning on nine of these. So uh, after tonight, we should have five more. And I'll just kind of summarize where we've been so far. At the beginning of the book, John opens up by talking about that which we have seen and heard, that which we've handled, which we've experienced, he's saying. And he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he uses this phrase, that which was from the beginning. And he returns to that a lot. And he keeps on calling the readers of his, of his letter to hold fast and to remain and abide in what was from the beginning, which is Jesus, but also the gospel, that which they were first taught when John came. And he spent a lot of time identifying hypocrites and false brethren. And he uses uh, the, these different uh, ways of speaking uh, to kind of check the fruit of these people. He says, nobody who's, who, who knows God will do this. Or I'll say, somebody who claims to be in Christ yet does this is a liar. And he speaks pretty strongly, and a lot of chapter 2 was about that. He's going to continue to do this because it's probably, uh, if not the reason, one of the main reasons why he was writing uh, to, to warn the readers against these things. But what we talked about last time, and the time before as well, is he's not writing this to scare the readers that they're not truly saved. This is how we can read this, and that's not the way he wants us to read it, is to read that and go, I don't think I'm a true believer. I mean, Paul said to examine yourself, so if that's how the Spirit is speaking to you, then let's get right with the Lord right now. But he's, he said in, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, remember he says, I write to you because you are strong, because the word abides in you, because you have overcome. He's writing this to them because they are in Christ. He's, he's not tr- trying to rebuke them. He's trying to warn them against, last time, remember what he called antichrists that are in the world. And tonight he's going to continue to emphasize that, specifically talking about the readers as the sons of and daughters of God. And he's going to use the return of Jesus Christ as motivation to live out obedience towards him. And this is a great, great section of scripture. A lot of really cool verses that we're going to unpack. And he's going to continue also this, this admonition to be distinct from the world. Remember we looked at last time, do not love the world or the things in the world. And there is a separation that we are to maintain, especially He's going to say when we consider that ah, Jesus is coming soon. And when I was writing the title for this one, I must have been in a good mood because I kind of picked a silly one. But uh, the title tonight is Just Wait Until Your Father Gets Home. Um, (laughs) Anybody's mother ever say that to them when you're at home? And you just wait till your father gets home. No! Right? And then, you know, the door opens and you're like, Daddy! And you're trying to, you know, set the tone of the evening a little bit. But, um... So that's just kind of what he's going to do here. So uh, that's the title, if you like titles. So let's now read verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So to give us a little context, the last thing he was talking about was the anointing that was upon believers. Remember, he said, you have no need that anyone teach you because you have an anointing from God. That's that word chrisma that we talked about. And uh, it's referring to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and instructs us in all things so that you don't need somebody to come in and say, I have special revelation from God that you need. He says, you don't need that. 
if you remain in the teaching that you have been taught. So he starts out verse 28 with this phrase, and now. In Greek, this is kai and nun. Kai means and, nun means now, so it's a literal translation. But he's using two different conjunctions here. One is connecting to what we just said. The other one is introducing a new theme. So he's saying, all right, that's, what, that's true. Let's continue on the same thing, but I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. So that's what's happening uh, grammatically here. And he calls them again, little children. John does that a lot. Uh, he's, he's older at this point. He was called the elder in the church and revealing his love for them, his responsibility for them. And he urges them to remain, to abide in Christ until his return. And this is, we've talked about this, but I'm going to hit it again. The word for abide here, abide in him. That word kind of has a mystical quality in the church, which is um, good in one sense, but also not so good because we can start to think that abiding is something, well, I don't even know what that means. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It just means remain or stay. The Greek word is meno. So he's saying don't deviate. Don't go somewhere else. Just stay here. Stay in the teaching that you've been given. Stay in the faith that you believe. Stay in obedience to the commandments that he's given you. Don't go after something else. Jesus talked about this, of course, a bunch in John 15, verses 3 through 4. He said, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That's key. And then he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus says, you're already clean. Abiding in Christ is not something that makes you clean. You're already clean. He uses the example of a vine and a branch. When a vine is attached to the branch, the vine doesn't have to do anything. It's going to grow. That's going to happen. The vines are not straining. They're just receiving the sap that comes from the branch. And this is what Jesus says. Just stay here. You're not going to be able to grow or bear fruit unless you abide in me. And John, of course, talks a lot about abiding. Uh, That's one of those teachings that he really picked up on from Jesus. Staying in the faith. Living as true disciples of Christ, not falling away. And you can see how this applies to what he's talking about here because he just ran through a long list of people he called antichrists who went out from among us, but they never really belonged here. They didn't stay. They didn't remain. They didn't abide. So he's saying, just stay here. Hold on to that which was from the beginning, as he said in chapter one. And the motivation for abiding is what? So that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So why should we stay? Why should I keep following Jesus? Because Jesus is coming back soon. Not only is Jesus coming back, he's coming back soon. We're going to break this down a little bit because this is important for us to know. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is risen from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he will return to end all things. He's going to return in judgment and in deliverance. Judgment of those who have rejected him and deliverance for his people. He himself said this, John 14, verses 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So it's a very common accusation that Christians invented the return of Jesus after his death uh, to continue the religion, to perpetuate his ideas. But Jesus himself said this. 
He left us here. He did not bring in the kingdom right away. Part of that had to do with the fact that Israel rejected him as Messiah, but also to, to spread the gospel, to bring the message of salvation to as many as possible until God is ready for the end. Because remember, the end of the world, the return of Jesus is a moment of deliverance for those who are in him. But you remember Amos said to the people, why do you desire the day of the Lord? Because the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and, and blood and judgment. And while we look forward to when Jesus returns, we know that when he comes back, it's going to be bad news for most people because it's going to be the final day of judgment. So uh, that's why he left us here. Because I'm not going to do this yet. I'm going to give you thousands of years to spread the gospel to as many people as possible. That's the mercy of God, right? So John's already mentioned here that the Antichrist is coming, but he's making it very clear. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the return of Jesus. Looking for the return of the Christ, not Antichrist. And it's also because of verses like these that we believe Jesus' return is what we call imminent. You guys know what imminent means. It could happen at any moment. Not every believer thinks that. Every believer believes that Jesus is coming back. Not every believer believes that Jesus could come at any moment. Uh, there are some who believe, well, there's going to have to be the judgment and the tribulation first, and then he'll return. Uh, there are some who believe that, you know, it's, he's going to come spiritually and not physically. Uh, but here's the thing. Let me just ask you this. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Uh, why would John's audience here need to worry about being ready for the return of Jesus if there was no chance that he might come at any time. He's saying, be ready, because you don't want to, when Jesus comes, you don't want to shrink from him in shame. It's like, well, if you are going to be given a seven-year heads up that he's coming, what, what are you worried about? Oh, that, there's the Antichrist. I better get my act together. No, he says, no, you need to be prepared. I mean, the Bible says over and over again that the return of Jesus will come like a thief in the night, that it, it's going to catch people off guard. And we discussed this last week. We believe that Jesus will return for the church in what is called the rapture before the Antichrist comes and ravages the world. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, the well, there's many, but two I'm going to hit on. Number one, the Antichrist says will be victorious over the saints. Jesus said that no one will ever overcome the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And second of all, when we talk about the tribulation, the seven years of the book of Revelation, if you're not familiar with that, I'm sort of assuming that you are, but it talks about seven years where the world will go, undergo the worst time in history. Natural disasters, war, famine, totalitarian dictatorships. It's going to be awful. But it's not just going to be bad. People will sometimes throw out uh, this cheap shot and they'll say, well, people who believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, they just don't want to suffer. First of all, I've been in pre-trib churches my whole life. I've never once heard anyone say that. <laughs> Second of all, the tribulation is not just a bad time. It's the wrath of God being poured out on the world. It talks about this in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. You and I are not under the wrath of God anymore. Where has the wrath of God been poured out for you and me? On Jesus Christ at the cross. So when you talk about the Antichrist's reign, when you talk about the great earthquake that shakes the world, when you talk about the disease and the famine, these things are not just bad times. These are God unleashing hell on the world in judgment. You and I have already taken judgment, or not, we haven't taken judgment. Judgment has been taken for us. The Bible says we are not appointed to wrath. 
because Jesus has already taken that for us. So those are some real uh, simple but strong theological reasons why we believe that, uh, that the rapture will come ahead of time. And it's the only reason, only uh, view that explains the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And some people want to say, well, the return isn't clearly imminent in the Bible. Well, first of all, what we just read in John, but also in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. When Jesus had said these things, as, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus ascended to heaven, and while they were gazing into heaven as we, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The church expected that Jesus was going to return in a few minutes, <laughs> From the very beginning, they had to have some angels shoo them away and say, not yet, you guys, soon, but not like five seconds from now, right? So from the very beginning, they were expecting the imminent return of Jesus. I mean, John writes in this, in this book, two, chapter 2, verse 18, it is the last hour. And some want to mock and say Christians have been expecting the return of Jesus since Jesus went to heaven. Well, that's true. Peter wrote about that. And his answer in 2 Peter chapter 3, I mean, you can read the whole chapter, but uh, this is his answer to that. In 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 14, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Remember we said that the return of Jesus is a very serious thing. That's the end of the line as far as time to get it right goes. So the Lord is allowing people to come to salvation, allowing them, giving them space to repent, as he writes in another place in Revelation. But, Peter continues, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So he's saying, it's gonna come like a thief in the night. He's given us space, but we don't know when that moment's gonna be. That's the imminence. And he makes the same point that John does here. Jesus is coming back, and you need to be ready for him at any moment. You ever have your mom and dad catch you doing something you weren't supposed to do? I liked video games in high school. I still do. But now I live in my own house, so I can choose my own hours. Um, <laughs> but growing up, I would uh, sometimes get out of bed or stay up past when I was supposed to and play Call of Duty on the TV downstairs with no sound or anything. And just, I'd be playing and hanging out and having, having a good time. And then all of a sudden you'd hear the steps in the hall coming down the stairs. And it's like, well, it's all over now. <laughs> and the, the, the drop in your stomach that happens like, oh, I am so busted, right? We caught Micah stealing one of those cupcakes out of the tray today. And uh, he, he snuck it and tried to lie and said that, Daddy said I could have one. I said, I said no such thing. And that's a similar thing, being caught. Do you remember that shame? John says, live your life in such a way that when Jesus comes back, you don't go, oh, no. Oh, no, he's coming. 
When Jesus comes, you want to rejoice. You want to sing. You don't want to hide. Remember Adam hid in the garden when God came because he knew he had sinned? No, you, you don't want to do that. Your sins are forgiven. You're, you, like, when, when I catch my kids doing something they're not supposed to, they're still my kids, right? And when I, when I come home almost every day, both of them, Daddy, and run and give me a hug. Daddy's home. But if they knew they were doing something they weren't supposed to do, they're hiding. And I'll find him behind the couch downstairs sometimes, hoping that I'll just forget that he exists for a little while. Um, or maybe that I'll miss him and I'll be so worried that I won't get him in trouble anymore. But John's like, don't do that with God. Be, be living in such a way so that at, at any moment you can say, yes, the return of the Lord has come and I'm ready. I mean, you've heard this since you were children, but God is everywhere. God can see you. And there's many things that we would never do if we knew that somebody was watching or if we knew that certain people were watching. Don't think you're alone and unseen. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 6, and this was a positive example, but it can be applied negatively. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, when you go into your room and shut the door, God sees you. So that's a good lesson. <laughs> He's a God who sees in secret. Now that can be a great thing if you're, if you're uh, walking in righteousness. You know, Hagar, when she was running away with Ishmael and the Lord took pity on her and saved her, she said, you are the God who sees. But I mean, I've done plenty of things that I really wish God hadn't seen. But it's supposed to be motivation. Right? Because as he says in verse 29, that we have been born of him. He's our father. We are his children. You know, it's, it's really one of the saddest things in the world is when you've done something to rupture the relationship between you and your parents, especially your father, I found. But, you know, you're, you're like, this could be great, but I blew it because of this or that. There's even people who didn't do anything, but they've been manipulated or they've, they were little kids and they've allowed themselves to think that it was their fault that their father or their mother left. And that can wreck a person. So the Lord is like, listen, live your, your life in such a way that you're, you're making your father proud because you've been born again and righteousness is your inheritance. It's your uh, gift from God to live righteously. So he says, hey, don't, don't shrink in shame when Jesus comes. Be able to go, yes, and come running towards the Lord and say, yes, I'm glad that you're here and not go, oh man, I'm so busted. You don't want to live that way. You've only got a little time left to do what God has set for us. We don't know when he's going to come back. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be five years from now. So live every day as if Jesus could come back today and live in such a way that you take as many souls with you when you go, when the Lord returns. Chapter 3. So he mentioned at the end of verse 29 that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So being born of him. He's going to pick up on that idea going into chapter 3 about uh, being born of God or being a child of God. So first three verses of this chapter. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That little sentence is, has so much loaded behind it. I'm just going to read it again. <laughs> we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So he's going to take a moment to rejoice in the blessing of being a child of God. Now, this is not in some weird New Age sense, like, we are God's children, man. He says, no, you have been called a child of God by the Lord. God himself has said, you are my daughter. You are my son. The world loves to say that we're all children of God. And there's a sense where that is true. God has created all of us. So in that sense, he is, he is the source of all life. So in that sense, he is our father. But as far as the relationship of a child and a father goes, we are not all children of God. Remember that song, the, the Disney movie, Hunchback of Notre Dame? It's got that, that uh, song in it, uh, God Help the Outcasts. Remember that one? She sings it in the church. It's actually a pretty powerful song and pretty intense. And like, okay, I can actually get behind the message of this here. But it does have the line where she says, I thought we all were the children of God. And you get the point. But it's like, actually, the sad thing is we're not all children of God. And it makes the message, which is to not ignore people who are on the fringes, that much more intense. Because, no, we're not all children of God, but we need to be and we can be. So it's a motivation to evangelize. But uh, what John is emphasizing is not the universal nature of being God's creation, but the relational point that we are in a relationship with God. It's a distinction about who we are as Christians that separates us from the world. And this is why he says, this is why the world does not know us, because it did not know him. You ever wonder why the world never seems to understand what Christians believe? They, they always reject it. Even, even if at first they accept it, they always cycle back to wanting to get rid of us or to water down the message. Well, why is that? Because they rejected Jesus first. John 15, verses 19 through 21. Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And that's a little ironic because they didn't keep his word. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Very common misconception that Christianity lived out rightly will make everyone around you super happy and they'll be thrilled to death to know you. You know, I, the most obvious example I can think of is uh, Rob Bell in his book Velvet Elvis has this line in there where he says, a Christian living out true Christianity will have the, the Buddhist living next door and the Muslim living next door will be so glad that they've got this Christian living next to them and will be so respectful of their faith and will love them so much. His mistake is he never moves on to, well, yeah, but you got to call them to repentance because they're going to hell. That was, that was his whole problem. But even there, you see, he's like, if we do this right, everyone will love us. That's not true. True Christianity will never be celebrated by the world. Jesus was crucified. The Son of God was crucified. And we should expect no better. If you're going to walk as Jesus walked, your, your bar for acceptance should be super low. <laughs> like, a good day for a Christian is not being nailed to a cross. Like, that, that's the, the, the standard for us. And you say, well, but everybody loved Jesus. The crowds flocked to him. They flocked to him, but 
They also didn't really like him very much, if you actually read it closely. So every time he got really, really intense, and he started talking about the cross, he started talking about the blood, he started calling people to repentance, they left. They'd ditch him. They liked who they thought Jesus was. They thought who their version of who Jesus was, they loved. But when they actually stood face to face with him, they didn't like him very much. It's so funny. Uh, we've talked about this a couple times already, but the, how Jesus, really both sides of the coin, he made them mad, but he also reached out to them, right? He reached out to the poor and they loved him for it. Reached out to the tax collectors and they hated him for it. Reached out to the Jews. They loved him for it. Reached out to the Samaritan woman and they got all suspicious, right? Because both sides, oppressed and oppressor, were like, Jesus, you're not doing it right. And Jesus is like, I'm not here to play your game. That's why the one thing that could unite Herod and Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and the mob of Israel was the death of Jesus. Okay? Jesus forced people to a point of decision, and he said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. So here's the thing. We may win some short-term gains in the world. We might, I and mean, we very well might. The gospel is powerful. I mean, we, we live in a culture that had hundreds of years, almost thousands of years of Christianity permeating the culture. There were problems with that because we began to conflate Christianity and culture. Now we're kind of at the end of what's called Christendom. Um, I pray that the Lord brings it back because there's so much fruit that's been born out of that. Our society was transformed. We think of Western society as Christian culture. It wasn't for a long time. It was pagan, polytheistic, barbarian culture. They were worshiping rocks. They were worshiping trees. They were worshiping Zeus and I don't know, Medusa and whoever else they were worshiping. The gospel came in and stamped all that stuff out. There are some short-term gains, but all along the way, you see the corruption sneaking in and men of God having to come and push it back. And even now, we're like, well, they are kind of fed up with it. And they think they can have, I was reading through Hosea this morning and about how uh, he's talking about Hosea's wife, Gomer, and he said she, she was an example of Israel and she was an adulterous wife to, to Hosea. And the Lord wrote about Israel and about Gomer. He said, she thinks that all the blessings that I've given her are just hers and that she can get them on her own without me. But I'm going to take those things away. And I was thinking about our country and we're, we're kind of at a place where we're saying, yes, we were built on Christianity and we got all these great blessings, but we don't need Christianity to have those things. Not recognizing the hand of God. A little bit of a rabbit trail, but the point is you can win some short-term gains with the world. Yes, okay. But we need to recognize that it's always right around the corner and the enemy is always working to undermine that. So your attitude should be able to be that when the world hates you, you can say like Jesus when they picked up stones to stone him, you can say, I've done a lot of really good works. For which one are you, are you trying to kill me? To be completely blameless like Daniel, where they wanted him dead, but they couldn't find anything wrong with him, so they had to make his religion illegal. That's who, how we are supposed to be. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we're not out there, you know, uh, hating the world and, and trying to, uh, you know, make our own enclosed societies and communes where no one can ever see us and talk to us. But we also can never let the world be the drum that we're going to march to. 
Never let the world tell us when we're right or wrong. That's why, I mean, there's some value to this. I'm not knocking it completely, but anytime someone comes in and, and brings in surveys, like, did you know that 78% of people, I'm making this up, 78% of people say that the church is not loving. That's terrible. We need to more loving, be more loving. It's like, hold on a minute. That's the world. They thought that Jesus was blasphemous. <laughs> so, and they said, well, we got to be more loving. They think that we hate gays. We don't hate gays. Let's be very loud and say that we don't hate gays. We don't let the world beat the drum and tell us what our problems are. There's some legitimacy to those things, sure. There can be, but it needs to be taken into uh, evaluation in, in, the, in prayer and through the Holy Spirit. Because very often it might be, no, you, we're, we're very tolerant, we're very loving, you just don't like what Jesus had to say. And we, we, we seek to remove the offense of the cross, as Paul would say, and we can't do that. Nor should we try and curry acceptance and favor from the world where we're just tickled pink when there's a politician who says the name of Jesus. <gasps> We've got him, he's on our team, you know? Or any celebrity or, or athlete or whatever who mentions, you know, God one time, now he's got a book deal and a speaking tour and he's speaking at all the conferences and stuff. Listen, if they're believers, God bless them. I don't want to bag on them. And if they get a chance to share their testimony, praise the Lord. But we don't have celebrities in the church. We're not to be respecters of persons. We're not supposed to say, oh, we, we have celebrities just like they have celebrities. No, we're different. We're supposed to be distinct. We're not looking for them to talk well of us. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For their fathers did that to the false prophets. So, this, that's an important point. He says, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Jesus. So, can we make some gains? Are we going to see people get saved? Can we see cities transformed? Absolutely. Can we see good laws get passed? Absolutely. But we need to recognize that sin is always at work and rebellion is always just below the surface and it's only by the grace of God that we see happen what happens. So, like I said, there, there's balance there. You, you live righteously and peaceably with all people, but you never, ever compromise because there is a distinction and a distinction that John makes in verse 2. We are God's children. Now, we hear that phrase a lot, the children of God, but what does that mean? What does that fully imply? And John actually says in this verse, he says, it's, uh, it's almost too much to think about. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This has become recently one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I'm so glad we get to talk about it here. To be a son of God. And I like to say son of God. You say children of God because it, uh, you know, it's, it's gender neutral, obviously, because sons and daughters. But I love saying the term son of God because when we hear that I'm a son of God, we immediately think of who? Jesus. Well, Jesus was the son of God. I'm, you know, I'm a son of God. No, you should make that connection. Well, that would imply that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the point that he's making here. To be a child of God is to be joined with Christ, who was the only begotten Son of God, and now you are an adopted heir of God. You are an adopted co-heir with God. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. I get so pumped up when we talk about this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let that sink in for a minute. A son inherits what belongs to his father, and you are an heir of God. Well, Jesus is God's son. No, you are a fellow heir with Christ because you are in Christ, because he is God's son and you are in him by faith. You are now God's son or God's daughter. This would be blasphemous if it wasn't in the Bible. (laughs) The glorification of the believer. We run through that so quickly. Yeah, justification, sanctification, glorification. Glorification? I'm going to be glorified in heaven? Only God gets the glory. It says you will be glorified with Christ, alongside Christ, glorified like Christ is glorified. I don't know about that. This makes you really uncomfortable. Exactly. That's why John is like, I don't even really know what this means, you guys, but it's pretty outstanding. (laughs) You are a child of God. You're not going to spend eternity in shame, hiding feeling like you're just barely part of the crowd, you know, easing it. No, no, no. You are going to be glorified. You share the life of Christ. You died like Christ died. You will rise like Christ rose. You will ascend like Christ ascended, and you will be glorified as Christ has been glorified. What do you say, whoa? What does that look like? John says, I don't even know, I love this, what we will be. Not what we will be like. What will we be? He says, I don't know because I can tell you this. We're going to see God face to face. And no one can see God face to face and live. So I don't know what that makes us. But that's something to think about. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that unreally believable? I made up that word unreally. Because it's really, but it's like unreal. So it's unreally believable. I don't even know what that's be, but it's going to be seeing God face to face, glorious. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. His divine power, so whatever he's about to describe, comes from the divine power of God. How much power does God have? Say all of it. Okay. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's not poetry, that's theology. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Hold on. You were called to Christ's own what? Glory and excellence. By which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through what? Through God's promises, which he gave to you by Jesus Christ, by God's own power, you may become partakers of the divine nature. But he say, whoa, again. <laughs> Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You know, we, we talked about the Trinity not long ago. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One in essence, three in persons. The second person of the Godhead, the Logos, the Word, became flesh, took on the body of a man, known as Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, 
And he's in what is called hypostatic union. I'm not going to go down that whole train again, but the idea is that Jesus is equally God and equally man. So you're hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. He is fully part of the triune God. However, he is equally human. So think of it that way, okay? God is, he is fully triune. However, he is equally human, Jesus Christ. Now, you, by faith, have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. You share his life, you share his blessings, you share his inheritance, which means, Paul, how many times does Paul say over and over again, in Christ, you are in Christ, or in him, in him. Well, where is he? He is attached to the Godhead, he's part of the Godhead, and his humanity is in equal uh, union with his divinity, and you are in that humanity. Do you start to get a, a little understanding of what he's talking about here? This is why John writes, I don't even know what we're going to be, guys. This is unbelievable. That we're going to be sharing in God's nature. Now listen, you will always be a creature and God will always be the creator. However, the upper limit of what that means has not even been clearly defined in scripture. That's unreal. You know, in, uh, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they have a word for this doctrine and we don't use it because we react to it. But I'm going to use it and I hope you understand, having me just explained that, that, what this means. They use the word theosis, which is Greek. And the English word for that would be deification. Being made like unto God. Now we think, well, what, am I going to become a God? No, you are not going to become a God. But you are going to become so like God that you will be able to stare God fully in the face as he is and live. I like that term, deification. Even though it can be very easily misunderstood. There's something unbelievable about being a son or daughter of God. Jesus is a son of God, the son of God, and you are now a son of God or a daughter of God. I've said this before, but the last thing that Satan will see before his judgment is God granting to mankind what Satan had falsely offered them in the garden. What did Satan say? You won't die. When you take that fruit, you will become like God. It was a lie. It wasn't true. But you know what God did? God is going in, we're going to talk about this in a minute, destroying the work of Satan, and he's bringing us to a greater glory than was even in the Garden of Eden. And I think the last thing that Satan's going to see before he is cast into the lake of fire is the glorification of God's people. And God's like, you know, kind of like what Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. You said it as a lie, and I said, yeah, watch this. This is why he writes, what kind of love is this? Jesus didn't just save you. He didn't just bless you. He is making you like him. He's going to glorify you. So what does John say? Listen, if this is what is going to happen to you, if that's your hope, everyone who has that hope purifies himself as God is pure. Purity. Greek word is agnes. So if you ever known anybody or if you ever wanted to name your daughter a biblical name, you can name her agnes and it means pure. It means to be separated for a holy purpose. That is what you are on the earth. You are separated for God's purposes. You are God's holy one. When we hear holy and, and purity, we, we think uh, moral purity, moral holiness. That is very true. But it's also broader than that. It is perfectly set apart for its use, for its purpose. 
So what does this mean? Uh, don't sell yourself short as a person. The devil always wants to come in and wants to convince us that we're worthless, that we have nothing to offer God, that God couldn't save us, that God couldn't, doesn't want anything to do with us, that we've totally blown it. That's, you have a divine destiny, and the Spirit of God has anointed you for life. Now, if that's true for the future, what does that mean for right now? It means get out there and live like Jesus would have you live. Take your life seriously. That doesn't mean become a bummer of a person all the time where you just can't enjoy yourself. No, Jesus said in John 10, I, 10, 10, I came that may, they may have life and have it more what? Abundantly. That's the life that God has planned for you. And the spirit of God is within you to make you live it out. One day you're going to be in God's presence. You're going to be glorified. But God is not making you wait till then. So leave behind the world. The world's going to offer you stuff. It's going to dangle something in front of your face like you're a cat and you're going to start pawing at it. Like, you know, oh, oh, this is so, so much fun. Look, it's shiny. Look, it's, it's new. Everybody likes me. Everybody's clapping at me. Who cares? <laughs> you're going to be glorified in heaven with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be not of this world. It means like, yeah, you can't tempt me with anything. <laughs> That's like somebody with a billion dollars in the bank and somebody says, hey, man, I'll give you five bucks and tells them to do something stupid. It's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. All right, fine. Ten dollars. All right, all right. Big money then. Fine. A million dollars. It's like, buddy, keep walking. Purifying your life. Leaving behind anything the world offers you and living life in the spirit. Knowing what's awaiting you when Jesus Christ returns. So I love this passage where he's talking about Remaining in Christ because of the glorious future that is awaiting us. And he's going to now run down. So we just talk about being a son of a God. He's going to kind of return to the same themes he's had before. So we're going to go a little faster through this. But he's going to con contrast what it is to be a son of God with those who are not the children of God. And how you can tell the difference. And uh, so what we're going to see here is three reasons why God sent his son into the world. And what he, these three goals, these three reasons or three purposes are, if you're living up to that, then it proves that you're a son of God. If you're not, or you're working against that, it proves that you are not a son of God. So three things. And the first one is in verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So the first, first goal, the first reason God sent Jesus is to take away sin. So those who live in sin, therefore, are not born of God. That's his point. Little thing here, in verse 4 and verse 6, um, the, the ESV puts it this way. Everyone who uh, makes a practice of sinning in verse 4 and then in verse 6, who keeps on sinning. I'm just going to give you a little uh, behind the curtain here. Uh, those are interpretive translations. So literally what it says in verse 4, it says, you know, everyone who does sin. The Greek word is hapoion ten hamartian. He's saying the doer of sin. So everyone who is a doer of sin also practices lawlessness. And then in verse 6, he simply says, No one who sins, hamartene, has either seen him or known him. Now the ESV translates that, keeps on sinning. 
but it's really much more intense in Greek. He's saying, people who are in Christ don't sin. And everyone who does sin is not a son of God. That's pretty intense. And, but, I mean, it makes sense. If you're God's child, you don't sin. And that should be the case. But we have, so you read that on its own, and it's like, okay, so we should expect that we live lives of sinless perfection. Well, you have to read it in the full context. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and then chapter 2, verse 1, he's saying if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. So he's already acknowledged that we are going to sin. So the interpretive translation is not wrong. I wanted you to know that it was there and to recognize that it is really a rather strong passage here. And I think it might be connected to what he says here, that sin is lawlessness. The word is anomia. Uh, comes, it's Ah, which is a negation, and namia, which means law. That's where we get the word Deuteronomy, right? The second law. So lawlessness. Um, it's kind of a funny thing. It says, sin is lawlessness. And there may be some Jewish background to this that, uh, you know, you can keep the law and, you know, maybe some related to the law of Moses and saying, so sin is lawlessness. Paul says in another place, walking in love is keeping the law. Um, I, it seems to me what he's, what he's, the point he's trying to make is um, lawlessness is this attitude of, of continual settled character of sin. So I, I think that it, the way that ESV translates it is certainly not wrong. It's just not literal. Uh, there, he's making the point, if you continue in sin and you don't have a single regret or worry about it, you're not a child of God. Paul said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do you see how he's describing sin as external? That sin is coming in to try and control you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So, I mean, (laughs) the, the very short point is Christians don't sin. And sometimes we do. And we have forgiveness for that. We're under God's grace. But someone who just sins and doesn't worry about it, sins with impunity, you don't know God. You're not a child of God. But it is wonderful to think that God doesn't just want to forgive your sins. He wants to take them away. He wants to cleanse your life so that the more that you live, the longer you're alive, you sin less. So uh, the goal is sinlessness. Are we going to reach that goal? Probably not. He made the point that we all sin but we now have an advocate before the Father. There is grace to fail and try and continue. So that's the first thing. God wanted to cleanse the world of sin. His children live that out. His enemies do not. Verse seven. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous (laughs) as he is righteous. That's an interesting little verse. Very open, very honest. Uh, It's like, listen, if you do righteous things, you're righteous. There's no games, no manipulation here. I could see maybe some people were saying like, you know, uh, I'm righteous and I do all kinds of bad things, but it's okay because there's some spiritual reason why I, I'm not really a, a sinner, but I'm actually righteous. And John's like, I, I don't have time for games. <laughs> if you sin, you're a sinner. If you're righteous, you do righteous things. So uh, God doesn't do manipulation, right? God doesn't do word games, okay? So cool little verse there, but moving on to verse eight, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the second reason that Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. So those who do Satan's work are not God's children. 
He attributes a lifestyle of sin to the devil. And the devil in the 21st century is someone that we would rather forget about sometimes. <laughs> and it's kind of embarrassing to talk about the devil or Satan or demons. You know, some people will still take you seriously if you want to talk about God. You start talking about the devil, though, and people go, okay. Or talk about my demons, you know, the things that I struggle with. But, you know, the idea of a personal devil, personal demons is just kind of weird in today's culture. But the Bible says there's a devil and he hates you and he wants your soul. It says that the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. The point being, the devil's nature is to sin. So if you are a sinner, your father is the devil. Jesus said the same thing in John 8, 44, telling the Jews who were rejecting him. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's saying you're either, you're either a son of God and you live righteously, or you're a son of the devil and you live wickedly. We're not given a lot of information about the devil in the Bible. We're really not. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things that are kind of assumptions, or maybe assumptions is the wrong word. They're uh, interpretive judgments that we make about, okay, it doesn't say this explicitly, but it seems that uh, a lot of our traditions about what, who Satan is and what he did in his history, uh, they're just traditions. Um, a lot of them are influenced by John Milton's book, Paradise Lost. Um, a lot of them uh, come from Greek mythology and kind of viewing it in, through a negative lens. By the way, if you haven't read Paradise Lost, go read it. It's very encouraging and edifying, even though it's not scripture, um, but it is pretty cool. You know, the idea that Satan has a tail and cloven hooves and everything, that's because originally Satan was identified with the god Pan, right? And that's how Pan looked. Was, so they kind of appropriated this uh, Greek god, and they started viewing him negatively as the devil. So um, all these things aren't wrong. I mean, it's not biblical, but it's not necessarily wrong. Um, when you're going to be dogmatic on it, you're sort of out of your depth. But, uh, you know, if it spooks you <laughs> to, to not want to be like the devil, then okay, it's doing its work then, isn't it? What we do know is that there was an angel of heaven who rebelled against God and became the destroyer of God's creation. He tempts people to sin. He works to overthrow God's authority. Uh, we're pretty sure his name was Lucifer. Even those passages there in uh, Isaiah, and I think there's one in Ezekiel, um, where we think it, it is a double meaning referring to the devil. It's not 100% sure, but uh, I, it's, it's good enough tradition that I'm willing to stand on it. And the greatest success of the devil was getting Adam and Eve to sin and casting the whole world into sin. Sin was Satan's device, Satan's plan. So when you live in sin, you are living according to Satan's plan. There's a real temptation for young Christians to think that they're going to go and live wickedly because they're going to be free and they're going to be free thinkers and live their own lives and make their own decisions. You're not. You're submitting to the slavery of the devil. You are a tool of the wicked one, and you need to be saved. Lucky for us, though, that might have been the devil's greatest success, but his greatest blunder was crucifying Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus Christ, he overcame death and sin for all of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Think of Narnia, the deep magic, right? None of the rulers of this age understood this. Who are the rulers of this age? The principalities, the powers, the demonic rulers and leaders of the world. 
None of them understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew what the cross was going to do, they would never have killed Jesus. It's actually a fun line of thinking to, to look at Jesus' life as sort of baiting the devil into, into crucifying him. He says in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil has no claim on us anymore. We belong to Jesus Christ. By the gospel, we go out and we rescue men and women from his domain. Jesus said, you, you can't plunder the strong man's house unless you bind the strong man first. Well, at the cross, Jesus bound the strong man. And he said, go get him. Get him out of there. Satan's time is over. <laughs> and those who belong to God, as John says, we walk in righteousness instead of being bound to the devil like the world. So the first thing was to take away sin. The second thing was to destroy the works of the devil. The third thing is to produce a righteous generation, verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, kind of begin with this universal human thing, trying, wanting to get rid of the situation that we live in, to take away sin. The second thing is to stop the one who is causing all this trouble, the devil. And number three is not just to get rid of the problem, but to restore what is broken, to move us out of the red and well into the black in financial terms there. John says we do not continue in sin because God's seed remains in us. The word seed is the Greek word sperma. It's not talking about a seed that you plant in the ground. It's talking about the seed of a man that produces a child. Because remember what we've been talking about. We are the children of God. You have God nature within you. John 3 verses 5 through 6, Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What did he tell him in there? He said, you must be born again. When you put your faith in God, you are reborn spiritually as a child of God. Your soul undergoes a transformation. Just as Jesus was the son of God, now you are the son of God. This is why we can't live in sin. We've been given a new heart. A new spirit lives within us, and it's the spirit of God. This is what Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God chooses people and changes people. He's called us his sons and daughters and he sent his Holy Spirit to work out that transformation and Jesus died and rose again to secure the means of that transformation. You were once in darkness, but now you're in light. You were dead, but now you are alive. Guys, salvation does not end at the cross. That's where it begins. It begins with death, but it continues to resurrection, new life. And it will culminate in the ascension and glorification of the believer just as Jesus was. You know, these, these descriptions that we just read a minute ago for uh, Satan and his hordes of the, the principalities and powers, those who have authority in the world over nations. We live in the world now as a new nation, a new people that belongs to God. 
Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify her for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. A people who are zealous for good works. So to produce a people who are going to go out into the dark world and change things, to turn it upside down, as the book of Acts says. So God came to remove sin, to destroy the works of the devil, and to produce a generation of godly people, his own people, his own children. You have the seed of God within you. You have the seed of your father within you. You, know, you look like your dad. You act like your dad. Even if you, don't even, work, even if you weren't taught things, you find yourself doing or saying things that your dad did. I've even known people who hadn't seen their dad for years, and they still develop the same characteristics and mannerisms and, and things because his seed is in you. You've got half his DNA. Or half your mom's DNA too, of course. But listen, you have God's seed within you. You have God's DNA within you, changing you and transforming you so that after a while, even without trying, just by staying and remaining and abiding, you start to talk like him. You start to think like him. You start to act like him. That's what God has for you. Not just for the world now, but for glory in the future. And because that future is coming soon, in fact, because it could come at any minute, John says you need to live out your life and see what God wants to do through you. Well, I'm, I'm kind of a nobody. Not anymore, you're not. Not anymore, you are now uh, a, a son or a daughter of God sent out just like Jesus was sent out. Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of John, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. You're not going to go die for sins, but you're going to go and spread the good news of, of Jesus dying for sins, and you're going to liberate the captives in Jesus' name. That's what God has for you. That's who you are, because God is that good. So what's the application for today? Uh, obvious one, don't sin. <laughs> don't sin. You don't have to. You've got God's soul living within you. Walk as Jesus would walk. You have his spirit. The world has been given to you by the Father. The Lord has said, this is, I, all authority has been given to me, so go. Go and, and spread the kingdom of God. Conquistadores for Jesus, man. That's what the Lord has for you. Liberate the captives. Change your spheres of influence. We talked about this last week. I, well, what, should I be a missionary? Well, maybe, but where do you work? Where do you go to school? What about your neighborhood, your family? Be Jesus there and see the change start to happen. And stand tall. You're a son, you're a daughter of God, and you have a glorious inheritance awaiting you when Jesus comes back. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly.